Father in heaven, we come before you once more and say that we need your help. Lord, if you don't help us right now, we're just going to be a bunch of religious people sitting in a room with other religious people hearing somebody talk about religious stuff, and we're going to walk out of here no different than we came in, and that would be a great tragedy. So we ask that you would overcome all of our weaknesses, all of our distractions, all of our callousness and abiding sin, and all of the things that would hinder us from beholding the glory of Jesus in your word at this time, that you would work the miraculous... uh, just the the miracle of giving us ears to hear and hearts to believe and affections that are warmed toward you, would you change us by the proclaiming and the receiving and the applying of your word? God, we ask that right now you would would aid your servant as I stand up here and um, declare things that um, you have given to us in the scriptures, that you would give me wisdom and insight and understanding and discernment and uh, clarity. We pray for all of us, me included, that as we receive your word as it goes out, that we would have humble hearts and that we would uh, not be unbelieving, but that we would be believing and that you would help us to receive the word implanted, which is able to save our souls and transform our lives. And that we would Hear it not only for ourselves, but also for others, not in a way that we would be hoping that others are listening to particular points, but that we would, we would think of how we can apply uh, your word to one another, that we might be a people who reflect the love and the humility and the glory of Jesus. Oh God, would you help us in this time? We need it. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Well, as you turn to Luke chapter 9, verse uh, 37, I'm going to share a little story story with you that kind of captures, I think, the heart of what we're going to see this morning. So I became a Christian, middle of my junior year, kind of a crazy background of drinking and drugs and everything that kind of comes with with that lifestyle. And because of the kind of testimony that I had, I had a lot of opportunities to be on stage pretty quickly and to, to be sharing about what God had done in my life. But as I shared, I felt the burden that if I was going to be telling people what God said, I needed somebody to help me understand the Bible because I just, I didn't, I didn't know anything and felt like I was making stuff up all the time, which is a really dangerous place to be if you're in the ministry. So prayed that God would bring somebody into my life to teach me the word. And there was a pastor in Denton, Texas named Tommy Nelson who had a discipleship program. And uh, that's what he did. He taught people the Bible. So I moved there. Um, about a year after I had been a Christian. And as we got there and began the discipleship program, he told us that we need to figure out a ministry that we were going to be a part of and serve there. Because part of being uh, of learning is learning to serve. So um, seemed to me that the best place for me to go was college ministry. I had gotten saved in college. I had had a platform before I got there of, of speaking to college students. So I was certain that I would be able to bless the college students there. So I uh, went, and um, the, the leader at the time, a guy named John Bryson, he, he had a knack for being able to, to sniff out prideful young men, um, and he, he noticed quickly that uh, I needed some lessons. So um, he told me, hey, listen, uh, we have our first ministry event. There's going to be several hundred people there, and uh, I've got a very important job for you to do. I need you to be ready, which in my mind thought I should go ahead and write a sermon or be ready to share my testimony because he he kind of knows, you know, so I'm going gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to get on stage and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to make this, make this happen for Jesus, right? So get there, show up that night, and uh, it's, it's about time to go, and, and I go up to him, and he, he said, yeah, hey, I've, I've got something very important for you. Follow me. I said, all right. So I'm walking over, and he leads me to, to the curtain and to the rope on the curtain, and he says, 
Tonight, you have the very important job of opening and closing the curtain for everybody who is out on stage. Thank you for serving. And he just walked away. Now, for somebody who's proud like me, um, it, was, it was a hard deal. And I, I, I will not lie, that whole night while I'm standing there pulling the curtain, I could feel in my heart the criticisms welling up about the people who were on stage. That if I was out there, I'd have said it this way or I'd have done it that way and people would have really heard the gospel if I'd have been up there and this and that and all these things were going through my mind. Now listen, God has never spoken audibly to me. But in that moment, there was an impression that I am certain is from the Lord that I've never forgotten. And it went something like this. If you can't be content back here serving me where nobody can see you, as you would be out there where everybody can see you, then you're serving for your glory and not mine, and I will not give my glory to another. That was, that was needed in my life. Because you see, I had a misunderstanding about what true greatness was. I thought true greatness for Jesus was being up front and being that guy. But as we're going to see in our text this morning, Jesus in his kingdom has a very different definition about what greatness is. Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 56 is where we are. In this gospel, we have a presentation of Jesus as God's Son, the Savior of sinners. And he comes for all sinners who will humble themselves and and, and come to him, but, but particularly he has an eye toward the forgotten toward the outcast, toward the oppressed, toward those who everybody else doesn't seem to love, Jesus has a heart for, for them. And as we've been journeying through this gospel of Luke, um, I've told you a couple times that chapter 9, verse 51, is kind of a turning point in the, this ministry of Jesus where he is setting his face toward Jerusalem, the place where he will go to the cross. He's always had that in mind. It's been the plan from eternity past, but he has his, his face set there in a unique way, and we're going to actually see that text uh, as part of ours this, this morning. It is there that he will die for sinners like you and like me. So, so far there's been a lot of public miracles, a lot of public ministry, but his, his focus is shifting now to his disciples and building them up. Well, the last time that we were in Luke, you'll remember that we were together with Jesus and the disciples on the mountain of transfiguration where Jesus in all of his glory was unveiled before the three, Peter, James, and John. And they saw him in his coming kingdom glory, and we saw Moses and Elijah there. The law and the prophets fade away, and all that remained was Jesus. And we heard the Father say, This is my beloved Son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And it's with that ringing in the ears of the disciples and us, the readers, that as Jesus descends now from the mountain of glory and enters back into the mess of our world, that, that word should be ringing in our ear, listen to him. Listen to him. And what fills the rest of the chapter that we're going to be in this morning are instructions from Jesus about true greatness. And what we're going to learn is this. This is our big idea that I think holds all of the rest of this chapter together. It's that true greatness is humble service in Jesus' power that points others to his greatness and not our own 
True greatness is humble service in Jesus' power that points others to his greatness and not to our own. The way this is going to unfold is Jesus is going to give a lesson about power, a lesson about greatness, and a lesson about, we'll call it, perspective. So let's look at this first lesson that he gives about power here. Chapter 9, verse 37 down through 45. Now on the next day, meaning the day after this transfiguration where Jesus' glory has been revealed, when they, Jesus and the disciples, had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. Verse 38, and behold, a man from the crowd cried out, teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a a spirit seizes him and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Verse 41, Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Now this, this scene of Jesus and this, this showdown with this, this demon and the, the only son of this, this, this father always follows the transfiguration in the gospel accounts. That's where it shows up. So this is, this is where this happened. It's right after Jesus on the mountain of glory. And once again, we've got crowds rallying around Jesus. And the reason they're coming is because they want to hear his teaching, but again, they love to see the miracles, right? Well, as always, a miracle is, is needed once again. As we see in the, the scriptures and in our everyday lives, people never lack pain that necessitate the intervention of Jesus. Well, that's what's happening here. And what we find in verse 38 is this, this unnamed man who cries out from among this massive crowd about his only son. And the fact that he's being afflicted by this, this demon, this unclean spirit. And, and, and the, the description of what this demon is doing to this boy is, it's striking. The the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they, they, they serve as stereo for us here to be able to get, get all these, these details about what was happening. It says here in Luke that he, this, this, this demon seizes him like a lion pouncing or a, a shark striking. This, this evil thing attacks his son. It's a vicious assault. Luke says it seizes him. He cries out. He foams at the mouth. It shatters him. The word shatters, it means overcomes completely. It says it hardly leaves him. It means this, this ongoing, unceasing affliction that this young man has. Matthew tells us that he has seizures and suffers terribly. And Mark tells us that it's, it, it makes him mute. It throws him down, that he grinds his teeth, that he convulses, that this thing throws him into the fire and into the water to try to destroy him. And in Mark... The father says, this has been happening from his childhood. This thing, this demon, this wicked evil spirit is torturing this child in front of his parents day in and day out. 
Now, it's very easy, once again, just to read the Bible and see it as just a story. This is real life. This, this happened. Imagine this, this boy. Imagine the scars on his body from the fire. From the cutting, from the, the pain, from throwing himself down. This family has never known peace. Imagine the joy. It's going to be our child. We're going to bring him home. It's going to be wonderful. But their path was, was a ter- terribly difficult path. They've never known a normal day. Now many of you have known the pain of a suffering child. It is heartbreaking. It is confusing. And you can hear it in this father's voice. Verse 40. I begged your disciples to cast it out. I begged them. I'd heard about the authority that you gave them. I'd heard about their miracles. I heard about these healings. And I begged. It's the same word in verse 39. Begged. This father would give anything. To swap places with his boy. Any father knows what that, that trade-off would be like. Anything to get deliverance from this. Now parents, I just want to point out here that this is what you do when your child is hurting. When they are being oppressed by Satan's attacks, whether explicitly demonic in this way or or whatever way it may be showing up, this is what you do. You bring yourself and you bring your child to Jesus. And you cry out and say, help us. Everything else is failing us. And that's what he says. He says, but they they could not. These disciples, they they couldn't help me. They couldn't help him. Now, it's likely that these are the nine disciples who hadn't been on the mountain, potentially, We don't know exactly, but what we do know is that they tried and they were unable to help. They could not bring healing to this this boy. Verse 41. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Now this is surprising language from Jesus. And in all honesty, this is one of those passages that's always just kind of bothered me. Like, Lord... You seem kind of mad here. Help me understand what, how, what's, what's going on here. Who is it that Jesus is frustrated with, and what is he frustrated about? But I think it's very clear he's not frustrated with the father or with the boy. This is, this is not what's going on as you're reading Matthew and Mark and, and this. It seems that, what, that Jesus' frustration is, I think, twofold. It's, it's with the crowd and their unbelief, and it's, it's with his disciples who just aren't seeming to, to get it. Ma- Matthew and Mark give us a little more information. Where it says they just come down off the mountain, and Mark tells us that there's these religious scribes who are basically glorified seminary professors who are apparently debating theology, be, theology with these disciples while this, this poor boy is being tortured right here by a demon. And you've got this desperate dad who's brokenhearted, who's out of options. And 
just as Jesus was righteously angry in the temple and he flipped the tables of these money changers who had come in and used God's name to make, make a dollar, here he is righteously frustrated with these religious leaders, with these crowd who's just coming for a spectacle, and with his, his disciples. It's like, I, I'm praying about it this week, I was like, what is happening here, Lord? And it, it, it seems that it's, Jesus just comes down from glory and he enters into the mess and it's, it's like nobody sees. Everybody has such a low view of reality. There's real spiritual warfare that's going on here and all you've got are these religious leaders who over here are like, well, I'm sure you didn't, if you'd have parsed it in the original language first, you would have easily have said the right word and then every, it, that, that stuff got to drive him mad. And what the disciples seem to be missing is that they needed more than what they have in themselves. Mark says it this way, the disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You see, the disciples couldn't help the boy because they did not have power. They didn't have the right, they didn't have power to help him. And they didn't have power because didn't pray. Their problem was not their weakness. That's assumed. Everybody who's in ministry is weak. Everybody who's a believer is weak. That's not the point. The point is that they didn't allow their weakness to drive them to the right place. It didn't drive them to cry out and say, Oh, God in heaven, we need your power here. We can't do this. They just, whatever, they're like, I mean, we, we don't see exactly how they were doing it, but they were going out and be like, just trying to cast it out in, in whatever way they were. But somehow, Jesus prescribes that the problem here is that they did not seek his power through prayer. Ministry. Which, if you're a Christian, you're in ministry. This is what it means to be a disciple. A disciple is somebody who follows Jesus, who helps other people follow Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. So if you're a Christian, you're in ministry. Everybody's form may look a little bit different, but, but hear this. This is for us all. Ministry in Jesus' kingdom is a series of great, impossible acts accomplished by the by miraculous working of God through weak people. That's, that's what ministry is. It's, in his kingdom, it is this, a series, time and time again, of, of great impossible acts that he accomplishes through his weak people according to his power. And, and, and this is an enormous problem in many ministries today. Especially ministries that have resources. Like us, we're a rich church. I mean, when you compare it to most Christian churches in history, we have a building. We have stuff. We have electricity. We have, we have, we're a wealthy church compared to most churches in history. The Western church is a rich church. This is one of the great problems in ministry today. You've got big buildings and big names and big book sales and Twitter followers, but no power. 
Why? Because we don't pray. Now listen, Christians, you'll buy a book. You know what I'm saying? You, you'll buy a book. You might, you might read a book, but you'll buy a book. You might read a book. We'll fly wherever to go to a seminar to hear somebody else who can, who can do it. We'll quote Spurgeon. We'll get Apostle Bobblehead dolls. You do whatever you can do. We'll do anything but pray. I mean, think about it. Do you pray? I'm not talking about, Lord, thank you for the food. I'm talking about, do you pray? Is that what marks us as a church? That we're a people, when heaven looks down, that we are laid out. Say, Lord, we can't do this. We need your help. We need you to show up. We got marriages that are in trouble. We got children that need to get saved. We've got friends who are lost. We've got abiding sin that's eating us up. We've got pride that's shackling us. God, we need help. Amen. Is that what marks you? Is that what marks us? You see, the disciples were unable to help him because they lacked power. But Jesus has no lack. He has both pity and power. He has both empathy and authority. And he uses it. Verse 43, I think. Bring your son here. And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Jesus overcomes the demon who had overcome the boy. He set him free. He restored him to his father. What a moment that would have been. Could you imagine? Every time after that that the boy walked in the room, the father just looks over at his mother and says, He's alive. He's free. This tangible reminder of God's mercy. Now, I want to I make a very important point here that, that not all who have suffering children see this result. Though they plead with God, though they do exactly what we just talked about, and lay out and fast and pray and weep and call other friends to do the same. In this cursed world in which we live, there are some sick children that are liberated and there are others that are laid to rest. And we don't know why. But what we do know is this same Jesus who has power is going to show his power. On the last day when he returns, there is a resurrection coming for all who have been afflicted by sin's curse. They will be raised from the dead to suffer no more. That is the hope of the believer. So for those of you who have not seen God answer prayers that you cried out to him for, either not yet 
I would say keep pleading. And if you've lost a child, I want to say the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and he saves the crushed in spirit and there is a day coming when those prayers you will see were not in vain. Well, as Jesus works this miracle here before this crowd, verse 43 says, all were astonished at the majesty of God. People were amazed. They were astounded. They were confounded. This word there for astonished is used several times in the New Testament only of Jesus. It's one of those words that people behold him and there's, this is the word. They're, they're astonished by him. They see this majesty of God. The word majesty means prominence or greatness or grandeur. It's the same word that Peter, who was there at this scene, uses in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, of being an eyewitness of his majesty at the transfiguration. So what that means is this, that Jesus' miracle here reveals Jesus' majesty. The manifestation of his kingdom glory that was seen on the Mount of Transfiguration <laughs> Excuse me. It is seen again here. It's seen in the miracle, and it's seen for you this morning as we read this and the word is proclaimed. Peter says in that second Peter chapter one that we have an all the more sure witness because we have his word here. So you get to see glory this morning, the same glory that was on the mountain. You see it by faith through this miracle that reveals the power of Jesus. This power is intended to reveal his person to us that eyes of faith might see and believe and behold and rejoice. Well, verse 43, But while they were all marveling at everything that he was doing, Jesus said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. I mean, this is a screeching halt to this celebration. Jesus was not trying to ride the momentum of the moment. This was no political rally for a king about to go to his throne. This is a prophecy about a savior who's about to go to the cross. And this, this contrast couldn't be more striking. The, the crowd is astonished at Jesus' majesty, but there's a coming rejection of Jesus' ministry. People will not come humbly to him. They will hand him over and crucify him. This is the second foretelling of his, his death. You see, Jesus knew his popularity was about to run out, and he wanted to prepare his disciples for what was ahead of him and ahead for them. Which next week, when we see Jesus give the call of what it means to be a disciple, we're going to see what it costs to follow him. It's going to be the same thing that he endures. Well, verse 44. Did you notice there, let these words sink into your hearts, your ears here, your, your being. The contrast is sharp and it's, it's intended to cut so this truth can sink in deeply. Which I think it's just important to note here that the words of Jesus, they do us no good if they do not make their way into our hearts. Having a Bible filled with the very word of God does you no good. Even opening it and reading it apart from faith does you no good. This is not some magic book. It's a testimony of the very words of the creator of, and sustainer of the universe that we are to come humbly by faith and say, God, 
Would you give me ears to hear? Would you give me eyes to see? Would you give me a heart to believe? Well, verse 45, they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them, <coughs> excuse me, so that they might not perceive it, and they were, at, they were afraid to ask him about this saying. In Matthew, it says the disciples were distressed, which highlights for us that they heard him, but they couldn't comprehend how this can happen. How, like they couldn't piece it together. How could God's son be delivered to death? How could the Messiah be betrayed? How could re- rejection fit with his reign? This doesn't make sense to them. Now, one of the other things that doesn't make maybe sense to us is about it being concealed. What does it mean that it was concealed here? Was this God concealing or was it Satan concealing? There's discussion about that. I, I suspect it's God concealing. But, but either way, the point here is that they can't put the pieces together. And while, while there may be a, a, a hiding of truth to fulfill purposes, Jesus still rebukes them for not understanding. In chapter 24, verse 25, he says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? So while the hiding here is mysterious to us, it is, it is clear the disciples should try to understand. They need to let these words sink in because things in Jesus' kingdom are not what they seem. You see, Jesus' kingdom will not come as they expected. He will suffer as a servant for sinners. So as they're ministering, understanding that the true greatness does not come from them having power, but it comes from depending upon Jesus, who is the power and the glory, who is the very incarnate majesty of God. That's what true greatness is. It's, it's his power worked out through weak people like them and like me and like you. Now that's our first and longest point, which brings us to the second scene. We're going to get a lesson about greatness. So we've got a lesson about power, and now we're going to see a, a lesson about greatness or about humility. Verse 46 is right on the heels of this. Now an argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. (laughs) But Jesus, knowing the reasonings of their heart, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives him who receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So the disciples are strolling along here with with Jesus after this miraculous demon showdown. And it seems like they're kind of blowing off his conversation that they've just had about the cross and his betrayal. It seems like they're still assuming that Jesus is about to ascend the throne in Jerusalem as king. And what's natural for the disciples to start discussing? Well, who's going to be serving where in the kingdom? Of course. An argument arose as to which one of them was the greatest. Now, we don't know exactly what that conversation was like, but I'm sure it was pretty interesting. They're walking along and, you know, 
you've got uh, Peter, James, and John, and they're like, well, I mean, in the kingdom, we did get to go up on the mountain, didn't we? I mean, so chances are, just saying. And then uh, they look over and they're like, well, it's probably your fault then that uh, the demon didn't get cast out. Because we know how, you know, you tend to not real, real good at those healings and those miracles, huh? And then John says, well, hey, I am the disciple who Jesus loves. I mean, y'all, y'all know it, right? And Peter's like, hey, whoa, whoa, but who was the first to get the confession, right? And then another one says, yeah, well, he called you Satan after that, didn't he? So, you know, you can just, you can just see, right? I'm the smartest, I'm the best speaker, I've got the most Instagram followers, whatever, who knows what they're arguing about here. But they're jockeying here for position in this conversation about who's really the greatest of all the disciples. Now, while it's humorous, I think the reason it's humorous is because we know how real this is. The blindness of the disciples is supposed to shock us. I mean, Jesus just said he's going to be betrayed, and all they can argue about is who's more awesome. The reason is because what's in their hearts is what's in all of our hearts, that they have have ambition for glory. They're really thankful that Jesus is going to be seen. He's amazing, but they're going to photobomb him. You know what I'm saying? They're going to kind of jump in. They want to get their face in the picture. Where Jesus is casting out the miracles and be like, but look who's behind him, right? You know, Peter going like this. Like, there's something about us that wants, wants that. Now, there's a good part of that because we were created, right? We were created to be used by God and for him to magnify himself with us. But if, we can, if we're honest, we are also glory thieves. We, we want a little bit of it for us. Well, this is what's, what's happening here. Now, this, it's really important as we read this to not fall into the trap. Because the trap is that we watch these disciples and be like, man, they're dumb. Which is the same thing that everybody always says whenever they read the Old Testament. Man, Israel, pff, how could they keep doing that? And that's actually the whole point is to show you, yeah, how could they keep doing that? And why are you so much like them? Well, it says here, Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. Matthew Henry said... Thoughts are words to him. You see, Jesus knows everything. How wonderful and how, how terrifying and how hopeful all at the same time that Jesus knows all of your thoughts. It's wonderful because you are deeply known in a world where you often feel isolated and misunderstood. There's one who knows you. That's wonderful. But it's also terrifying because he knows you. I mean, if your thoughts from this week were on the the screen behind me, would you not duck in shame? The darkness is there. But with Jesus, there's nowhere to hide the darkness. He sees it. And yet hopeful that Jesus would still let them hang around that he would still love them and still wash their feet and still dine with them. How much for us? Well, Jesus sees this controversy brewing and he perceives it's a good time for a lesson about true greatness. So he calls a child into their conversation. Now, why a child? 
Well, some suggest it's because children are teachable and humble and desire instruction. Those are people who have never been around children. (laughs) I'm just saying, I've seen a few. I've been one, anyway. (laughs) You see, in first century Jewish culture, children were too young to be considered important. Under 12 years old, you couldn't study Torah yet. So it was considered a waste of time to spend time with children. They were just a nuisance. They were just, they were just children. But what Jesus does right here is he brings in this one who would be useless in the eyes of the world, one who's going to be passed over, one who's going to be on the outside, one who's going to be an outcast, one who's going to be kind of forgotten culturally. And Jesus, Jesus punts that cultural expectation right out the window because his kingdom has different values. Now, some have used this as a verse for children's ministry, and I, God bless you, do children's ministry. I don't think that's what this is a point. What he's, what, the point here is he's showing that the true greatness is found in humble love for all. The true greatness is found in having, having a, a perspective, having a, a view about life that does not include partiality. That love is... Love is not just to be something that you show to people who are going to get you to a position that you're working for. Love is not just a a manipulative tool to get you on the fast track to be able to get applauded and exalted and to be truly great, which is kind of what they're doing to Jesus a little bit, at least Judas is for sure. And the others, it's mixed in there just as it is with all of us. You see, True greatness in Jesus' kingdom is a love that shows no partiality based on age or gender or ethnicity or political affiliation. I mean, just think of it. In this room, there is such a diverse group of people with all sorts of different things that we could disagree on. Some of y'all been watching each other on, on Facebook and be like, I think I can sit next to him today. I'll pray for him, you know? Like, there's so many reasons that we should not be in here right now loving one another, but what is chief among us this morning is Jesus. And what Jesus does is he shows what true greatness is by coming and loving a bunch of people. You think you love people who are unlike you? How about Jesus loving people? We're talking about the creator loving the creation. You want to talk about other. You want to talk about different kind of love. You want to talk about a reach. You want to talk about a stretch. You want to talk about humility. Jesus shows what true greatness is. The incarnation is amazing. So, yeah, I know Christmas has its issues in regards to all the commercialization, but for the church to remember yearly, the Son of God became man? What? Like, that is incredible. God would humble himself and show that he is the the creator of the universe is a humble God who would come among sinners like us. He'd breathe our air. He'd deal with our demons. He would walk in the same stuff that we do. That's incredible. What love is this? This is one of the things, by the way, that distinguishes Christianity from every other religion. You study every other religion, it's nothing like this. True, true greatness is power. Now, it might cloak itself as, as, as humility, but it's, it's got nothing to do with God. It has something to do with you. 
You see, we were received by Jesus, not based on our awesomeness, but on his. Jesus is the incarnation of greatness. He laid aside his glory to come among the lowly like you and like me. He loved us in spite of us, and he gave himself to die on the cross Not for his own sins, but for ours. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. And then he rose, and now he has called for all sorts of sinners, no matter where you've been or what you've done, to come, to turn from your sin, to believe upon him, to be forgiven, and to be received unto him like this child. And Jesus says, if I'm going to receive people like this, you want to know what true greatness is? You love like that. You love people like that. And if you're going to receive people in my name, then you get the Father. Because that's what it means to be a Christian, is that you love people who are not like you and are perceived to be outcasts, as it were. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. You see, Jesus teaches here that true greatness is humble service in his power that highlights his great love for those the world has seen as forgotten and outcast and sinners, just like you and like me. You see, this morning, this gathering of a people that are very unlike one another together magnifies Jesus. Nobody can strut out of here and be like, well, it's, we've got unity because of how awesome the leadership is or how great the membership is or because of our, our music or because of the preaching or because of whatever. Any unity we ever have that's worth anything is Jesus. He's great. Now, just one quick thing I want to point out here is is how Jesus instructs them. So this is rabbit trail, but hang on. Jesus was a master illustrator. He, He is always using everyday items, scenarios, and people in order to point out spiritual truths. So they're arguing about Jesus about greatness, and Jesus says, "Ah, I'll get a child. Bring it here." He does this all the time. Look at the birds. Look at the flowers, and he, he. everywhere. And the reason I wanted to point that out for us here is because it's, it's important because it helps us to see that everything in life is intended to serve as a prop in God's teaching workshop to instruct us about him and about his world and about his ways. Everything's like that. Well, don't mishear me saying, well, people are mere props. That's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that everything is intended to point us to him. And in this scenario, what's being exposed is their pride. They misunderstand greatness. You see, pride is a poison that fuels ambition for exaltation at the expense of Jesus being seen as great. You see, greatness is not us being being set above others, but rather it is us stooping to serve others like Jesus served us. True greatness is not us being recognized, but it's in us recognizing others as more important in the same way that Jesus did for us. One other thing I want us to to notice here in this this section before we we press on is the disciples squabbling about their greatness happened in the very presence of Jesus. The reason that's important to notice is because it highlights 
just how deceitful pride is. Of all the sins that you and I must watch for, there is none like pride. It is so deceitful. It can assure you that any stance you take is right for this reason. And it can always assure you that somebody who disagrees with you is, is likely very far from God and doesn't understand. It can assure you that every criticism that comes, that there's certainly no truth in there at all that you should ever listen to. Pride is very tricky. It's very deceitful. It's, it has many roots, and they all go down deeply in us. One of the most dangerous, I think, is, is the pride that comes with humility. In Andrew Murray's little book on humility, he, he says something like, beware of the pride that accompanies humility. Which means, you know, as soon as you start thinking, you know what? All right, I'm going to pursue humility. About 15 minutes into that, you're like, you know what? I'm pretty humble. I mean, I'm not sure I can write a book yet, but I should probably outline it, you know, and start. And you just start thinking, and you just get tricked. The disciples here, I think they're tricked. I mean, so much so that they can argue straight-faced with one another with the very incarnation of greatness right next to them about which of them is the greatest. Jesus says, my kingdom is not this way. J.C. Ryle says, are we the followers of Jesus who was meek and lowly of heart and made himself of no reputation for our sakes? Then let that same mind be in us which was in Christ Jesus. See, true greatness is the imitation of Jesus's humility. We humble ourselves, coming not to be served and exalted and applauded, but to serve. Now, I want to highlight this. This is where the gospel is so important, because you can't do this in and of yourself. Remember that? This is, go back to the first lesson. You need power to do this. Well, the power to do that is in the gospel itself. So you come and you say, Lord, I need help I can't be humble. I can't just get it together. I'm all kinds of messed up. Everything is bad. Help me. That is the posture where help comes. See, everything is upside down in Jesus' kingdom. What impresses people is not what pleases God. Leaders are servants. So for those of you who are here who want to be pastors, please, be very careful to spend too much time getting enamored with evangelical celebrity culture. That's not true greatness. True greatness, God may give you a platform, maybe he won't, that doesn't matter. True greatness is found in servanthood. You want to change our country with the positions that God's given you in your workplace? Do not get wrapped up in the iron-fisted political power grabbing that characterizes many throughout history. Jesus' way is different. It's a humble, honest, loving, servant-hearted, meek, courageous way. You want to, are you a parent or do you aspire to be a parent? Do not be domineering. Remember how the Heavenly Father has loved you. Remember that every bit of sin that is exposed in your children is very often mirrored in your own life 
and your own need for the gospel. And the more that you can come together and say, listen, I understand about your sin right here because I've got the same sin. The more that kind of gospel-centeredness can happen in your home, that's humble, God-glorifying ministry in the home. The way of the cross is true greatness. It's humble. That's true greatness. Which brings us to our third and final lesson, a lesson about perspective, which I don't really love, so if somebody can give me a better word later, I'd appreciate it. But anyway, verse 49. Jesus answered, or I'm sorry, John answers. This is after the conversation about greatness here. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. So the disciples are out there doing ministry, and they come across this Lone Ranger Christian. They hear a guy preaching in Jesus' name, and then they see him cast out a demon in Jesus' name. And they look at each other, and they'd be like, who's this guy? He ain't one of the three. He ain't one of the twelve. He sure ain't been in one of those 72 meetings. Who is this guy? We don't know anything about him. So they are skeptical, and they try and shut him down. Now, I want to say that there certainly are false teachers out there, and there are people who do miracles in Jesus' name that are not from him. We see that in Matthew 7, Acts 19. So maybe the disciples here are zealous for truth, and that's commendable. They're trying to protect the purity of the name. There's certainly an important place for that. But that's not what's happening here. This guy is evidently serving faithful. And one of the reasons I think is really important is because <laughs> this guy that they're, they're shutting down here, this is the kind of guy that many in our circles would rebuke. Who is this Lone Ranger guy? He must have bad ecclesiology. He needs to be in a church. This guy needs to get in line. He needs better missiology. Doesn't sound like he's probably got good practices. Where'd he go to seminary? Like, it would just be so easy to be like this. But Jesus says, do not stop him. If he's not against you, he's for you. You see, Jesus wants his disciples to know that their ministry is not an exclusive ministry. Jesus is the supreme one, and evidently he knew that this man was faithful to him. We don't know how Jesus knows him, but Jesus knows his people. We don't know if this is one of those garrison demoniac type situations where the guy wanted to follow and Jesus is like, no, go tell somebody. Go, you go tell everybody what God has done. And Jesus personally commissioned him out. We don't know. We don't have all that information. But what we do know is that Jesus knows this guy and he says he's not against us. He may not be doing ministry like you're doing it, but he's not against you. This is very important, once again, because Jesus' kingdom must not be marked by rivalry. There certainly will be faithful Christians who do things in ministry in ways that we would not do them. But this is intended to be a, a correction for people like us. That they are being faithful to him. We must be very careful in our day and in our ministry to not slander and discourage others who are laboring for Jesus. We should pray for them. So, for instance, this morning we prayed for John Yates and, uh, and, and Anglican Church, right? We, we love those guys. They preach the gospel. We would disagree on some things. 
But you know what? We love them. We share this building with uh, Alexander Presbyterian Church. I love Tom Holliday. He's a godly pastor. Now, I told him he should become a Baptist because we'll all be Baptists in heaven, but he doesn't believe me, and that's fine. You know? We disagree on baptism. We disagree on church government. We, church, we disagree on several things, but you know what? What we have in common is infinitely more important. So it is important for us to, to see people as allies and not enemies. It's, it's important for us, who a church who has pretty strong convictions about what a church is supposed to look like, about what ministry should probably look like, about precision, we should still be, be cautious because I am certain, very certain, that there are brothers and sisters that I have critiqued in this life who on that last day will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. I'm certain of that. Now, we still need to stand for truth and be discerning and correct where appropriate, but we must be humble and gentle and guard ourselves from assuming that we're always right or only right. Every one of us sees in a mirror dimly. This is why it requires humility and charity with one another. And I think if there's ever a topic that this would be very important on, it is that of, of the racial tension that continues to be in, 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 our, in our day and in our churches. The pain, the confusion. You see, because it is easy from afar to condemn, to critique, to divide, to assume that other people just aren't getting it. This is what marks Christians, is that we are to be a people who, who aren't just seeing from afar and judging one another that way, but say, me and you, let's go to lunch. I want to hear your story. I want to hear about what it's been like to follow Jesus in your shoes. Tell me your story. And I'd love to share my story with you, and I'd love for us to be able to understand one another. That's how empathy compassion is born that is how I think churches who learn to do that with one another among members rather than 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 pointing at one another and and assuming about one another I think that that's how in a church love is birthed and unity is fostered to where I am certain that we will not all come to the same conclusions at the end of the day But if there's an empathy and a love and a compassion and a tenderness and a willingness to risk for one another, God will use that and he is glorified in that because that, I think, is a mark of true greatness in his kingdom. It's very different than the world. Let the church not take its cues from the world on this. May God help us. Verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to hit on this verse again next week because of its importance, but, but Jesus here determined to go to Jerusalem. This is kind of the, the, the verse that, where everything kind of turns in, in the gospel, where he's going to Jerusalem. Now, he sets his face there. It means he's, he's destined to go there. He's going because he's going to die in Jerusalem. Like all the other prophets, he's going to die in Jerusalem there as the promised Messiah. But he will raise there and offer mercy. More on that next week. But on the way to Jerusalem, verse 52, there's going to be a stop. He sent his messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. (coughs) But the people did not receive him, meaning the Samaritans, 
because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Now, Samaritans, these were the offspring of Assyrian and Jewish intermarriages. And they were viewed by the Jews as half-breed, unclean outcasts. And the Jews and the Samaritans were bitter rivals. We'll see more of this in a few weeks whenever we do the parable of the Good Samaritan. They even had different temples. So in Mount Gerizim is where the Samaritans worshipped. And they thought that they and their adherence to the Torah was the true, true religion. You remember in John 4, the woman at the well was arguing with Jesus about this. Or discussing it. But did you notice here why they did not receive Jesus? These Samaritans. The people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. You see, his face was set toward Jerusalem. Tradition and racism are very real hindrances to faith. They don't want anything to do with this Jesus guy because he's going over there. And it hinders them. Well, verse 54, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? They were angered. Jesus' honor was being questioned. But maybe within their hearts there was a bit of their own disdain for the Samaritans as well. Do you want us to go all Elijah on them? Lord, I know you know about Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's do it right now on these guys. They deserve it. Verse 55, but he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Jesus makes it very clear to his disciples here This is important. That they are not to be the instrument of judgment on unbelievers. Christianity is not Islam. The Crusades were not from Christ. Jesus does not approve of the Samaritan way of worship. It is a false religion that hindered them from the forgiveness and the salvation that were in Jesus. But murderous zeal was not the way that Jesus was teaching his disciples to minister. Immediate judgment was not what Jesus came for. So he gives them a day of mercy, and he goes on. Now, as we conclude, I think this is an important part to think about for just a moment. Because there is a day coming when Jesus will return, and all who reject him, regardless of the reason, will be accountable. A fiery judgment does await. But God will bring that in his perfect timing. Here with them and with us this morning who do not yet know Jesus, he is being patient. Hear this from 2 Peter 3.9. The Lord is not slow uh, to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. It's very interesting because in Acts chapter 8, a number of years from then, Philip the apostle who was one of these guys who was there, is going to go back to that region, and you can read Acts 8 later, many believe there. You see, Jesus' patience with sinners is an extraordinary display of his humble love. He's being patient with them in the same way that he's been patient with all of us and particularly with those of us this morning who are here and do not know Jesus, who have not repented. It is sheer mercy that he has not consumed you yet in judgment. But it is also mercy that he lets you hear this word today. 
Do not misunderstand Jesus' patience as apathy. Romans 2 says it this way. Do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, tolerance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed, when God will give to each person according to what he has done. That's actually the verse that God used to save me. When God awakened me to the fact that he had been given me mercy. If, if Jesus was fair with the Samaritans, he would have rained down fire on them. But we are thankful for the many days that Jesus is not fair with us but rather shows mercy until that day when judgment comes. This is why he went to the cross, so that there he would receive the judgment and the fire of God that was deserved for sinners like you and like me. But then he rose, and now mercy goes out and calls for people to bow a knee, to turn from your sin, and to come unto him and to be forgiven. If you're not a Christian here this morning, please hear this. This is God's mercy toward you. I trust that you will see this very moment again in eternity future at that final day of judgment. May it be the day that God used to turn you to himself. Well, all of this is used to teach us about true greatness. The true greatness is humble service in Jesus' power that points others to his greatness. So as we go out and we labor, may we go as a church that goes in his power, humbly saying, we need your help. And as we minister, may we not be a people who are marked by partiality, only for people who are like us, look like us, think like us, act like us, but may we be a people who, who reflect the very mercy and humble love that was shown to us. And may God magnify his name through us, in spite of us, for his glory to the end of the ages. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you might use it to change us. Oh God, would you convict us of our prayerlessness, of our lack of reading your word with prayerful diligence and hopeful anticipation of you using it to change us? Would you convict us of all the ways that we are prone to assume others are wrong and assume that we are right? Would you give us wisdom of how to be a discerning, humble, gracious uh, people who seek to uh, reflect the mercy that has been shown to us through your Son, Jesus? And Father, finally we pray for any this morning who are here, who know themselves to not be right with you through repentance and faith in your son Jesus, we pray that they would not scoff at your mercy and your patience, but that they might see it uh, for what it is intended to be, a signpost toward your love for them. Might you draw them close, and might all of us who do know you be warmed and reminded by your mercy toward us. In the name of Jesus, amen.